Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 28, The Wide World of Racing. This is basically the time of year when racing is in full swing. The Daytona 500 has come and gone. IMSA racing, the 24 hours of Daytona, really started all the racing off. If you're a global, passionate uh, racing person, Formula One is now uh, going in IndyCar racing. We're seeing Trans Am already run races, the Australian Trans Am. You've got all the short track races are starting to go somewhere like Hickory here in, in North Carolina, South Boston, New Smyrna Beach, Florida. So racing is really going for the most part. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, you're about a month away. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're still 1st. under some snow. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, racing, it's the time of year that excites me, always has. And I love every form of motorsports. I know not everyone is that way. And some of our listeners, obviously, you might, you know, only have a particular form of motorsports that really intrigues you or excites you, uh, much like my wife. Well, that brings us to a good question. So for you... And hopefully listeners chime in on this as well. What is your favorite form of watching racing? Not not participating in it as a driver, but what would you prefer to be watching? I certainly prefer to watch NASCAR racing, oval track racing. It's what I was, you know, maybe brought up on when I was, you know, starting out, you know, with um, when I first really spent a lot of time at it. Obviously, my first love was drag racing with my father traveling to those races and going to the races and drag racing is an anomaly. It's one of those things that you have to really be there to really appreciate all the things that it, it touches every emotion, the speed, the power, the smell, the ground shaking. That's a different, that's more of a attendance high. Whereas, you know, stock car racing, I, I think you really can watch it and appreciate it, you know, over a 500 mile event and watch all the things, all the elements, all the variables, all the things that make up a race of strategy and, you know, intrigue and crashes. It just, I think, you know, it can get maybe a monotonous to some degree. Um, but, you know, if you really have an insight into it, you can appreciate what's going on. You know how hot it is. You know how hard the cars are to drive and the preparation that it takes to have a car run 500 miles without, you know, problems. And much like a 24-hour race, you know, the same thing applies there. So, But once again, you're taking it from a driver's standpoint, just purely watching. Because I know, like, you know, you like to watch Formula One. I do. I think, but that, it's different. I think for somebody that has a background in racing, that maybe has driven, has worked on cars as an engineer, uh, has a, best, a car fanatic of some sort, I think you can have appreciation for the technology especially now, you know, in the beginning, in the early days when I was watching F1, you know, there was, the cars were, I mean, they were 
difficult cars to drive. They were, you know, they were deadly. I mean, they were basically the driver sitting up in the car. His head is right there. And it was the intrigue of that, that these guys are going very, very fast, you know, and, you know, the fuel is right behind them. It's, it's a, a perilous, you know, thing to do to become a true race car driver in Formula One. But now for me, yeah, visually, optically, the races are more, you know, whoever qualifies on pole or top two or three or gets the best start of the race typically has the best, you know, chance of winning the race. So you have you know, more of a total domination in that regard. But I love all the things that encompass Formula One racing from a technical standpoint. You know, the the rules, uh, how they have to build and design their own cars, uh, obviously, the engineering aspects, the ground effects, you know, all the, the DRS where the wings open up. There's a lot I love about it, right? And I think that's the difference because uh, I can watch it within a different mindset. Yeah. And, and on the flip, you know, taking it from a person that has never driven a car. So I can't respect a lot of the things that, that you do from a pure spectator sport standpoint. And I would love to get feedback from listeners as to who agrees with me on this and not being raised in racing. So I didn't have a drag racing background like you did. And I'm sure it's very different when you are at the event, because like you say, the ground shaking and rumbling and, and the, the smell, and I'm sure it blows your skirt up at a drag race, but watching it on TV is a yawn. I cannot get into it. Um, it's too short and there's not, in my opinion, there's no strategy. It's, it's all the builder of the car, uh, the driver sitting in. I have to, you know, kudos to, you know, they got guts, you know, to, to go that amount. And, and like you say, there is a lot of gravity, you know, poundage on to that person. So, uh, you know, they have to be, you know, somewhat resilient. Um, but as far as athletic, I, I don't, I don't really see that. I'm going to well, have some drag racers come at me on that one. Yeah. You might get, you might get a rebuttal <laughs> on that. Uh, but I, the drag racing standpoint, like you say, when you're there, the concussion of, you know, what, you know, you can see or feel behind the cars when they take off and they launch and the nitromethane, I mean, the smells, I mean, it really is an interesting dynamic. You're driving the race car, the reaction times they have in a very, you know, short amount of time, you know, in three seconds, they're traveling, you know, a quarter mile and really there's a lot happening. And, you know, so there's a lot of things that they go through and, and, and what they have to do from a reaction standpoint. So, you know, it is different. And, but the, just the, again, the, the raw, you know, horsepower, you know, element is, is intriguing just because of how much power they make, how fast they go in a projectile going down the, the racetrack and trying to aim this thing. So, you know, but of course that's what I grew up on. So, you know, I, I do have a, you know, I guess a, a different perspective. Well, and I think you definitely have to respect the speed. And it's a, you know, it's kind of like a, a space shuttle type, you know, um, you know, looking at it from that perspective that a human is traveling that amount of speed in that period of time. I mean, that truly is a marvel, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's awesome in that aspect. But as far as a spectator sport, no. Um, and then the um, Formula One, again, I mean, I have tried, I have tried to cuddle with you on the couch and watch a Formula One race and it is a sleep inducer. I mean, it's better than NyQuil. <laughs> it's so boring. And I mean, I love the, uh, you know, the movie Rush. I mean, we've watched a bazillion times at your request. Um, and I love the history of it. And of course, our son-in-law, he loves it. 
but I cannot watch it. I mean, it's, I'd rather be doing dishes. Um, there's just no passing, you know, and I think that's it. Um, and then same thing with Indy. Um, I truly love watching stock car racing. And again, I've been there and I've listened to it and watched it. Now I've, I've been in Indy races and, you know, I can say that. And I, I call those, you know, bumblebee cars. It's interesting I think from a sponsor standpoint, when you show up to a stock car race or a NASCAR race, the sound is huge. The rumble is huge. The like being at Bristol, you know, and you take your headset off, that just the sound, that thunder is just amazing. It's like being at a rock concert in the very front row. You know, the sound just goes through your chest. And that is adrenalizing to me. So I've always loved stock car racing the best. Um, I've experienced everything um, in person except for drag racing. So obviously I don't have that perspective. And that's something that I'm going to have to experience. So, Well, I know that Bristol, you know, I've seen you at Bristol and I see how excited you've got. And, you know, for somebody that had, you know, no nothing to do with motorsports at all and had no no idea what it was about and then get thrusted into it and you know, to be going to a place like bristol when you know when like you say you go to a cup race there there's a there used to be 165,000 people there and it's in a coliseum affair you know a complete round oval around this place it really is something to behold you can all you can really just almost hear the people uh roaring over the the cars that it's that you know, that exhilarating for, you know, what the atmosphere is in the race car. You actually have this heightened sense of excitement because you see all the flashbulb stuff going off and people on their stand, you know, standing up in their seats, you come off the corner because things slow down as a race car driver. And you physically can see that out of the corner of your eye, out of the peripheral vision, you can just see the excitement level in the stands and that's just jacks you up, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so- well, And it's so close to you at Bristol. It is, it's so close. Like Martinsville and Bristol, they're so close to you that everything, you know, you you just sense everything more and it really is a, a true dynamic that you know is hard to replace anything you do but i i remember when you first came back here and you know we were um you were coming over and watching some races and i'm I, you know there's sometimes that i was still working or doing things and you were up in the bonus room with the vcr tapes right <laughs> the VH, old VHS. vhs tapes right that i've been you know saved and given to from had to buy know, a, a vcr to, to watch them <laughs> right but it was the old races in the early 90s and basically was you know the espn coverage back then and i remember you talking about how different you know all the fonts were on the tv and the you know the way that they spoke about racing who was the commentators and how they went took things back in the field and really went back and looked at who i mean they weren't always just showing the front they were really diving back in you saw races going on within races and you spoke about that and i could see you really getting so much more intrigued and excited about it and then trying to watch where i was at to better understand where and what i had you know where i'd come from and mm -hmm. what i'd gone through and uh yeah it was it was fun to watch you know a pure novice that had no inkling what it was about and then you to get physically excited about it you know it was it's kind of like when i first take somebody 
I took somebody to the race and it seemed like I never really failed to take somebody for the first time and for them not to leave there being a true fan mm-hmm. of the sport because of being up close and personal, being out on pit road, being in the garage, then seeing the cars, being on pit road and experiencing that and then seeing the driver after the race and all the things that happened during the race. It really is, you know, something to behold. Yeah, it truly is. And there are people that will, I mean, obviously I'm in, I was in sponsor acquisition for all those years. And so I would see sponsors leave the track sometimes, you know, and they're, you know, they're not fans. They're not ever going to be. But for the most part, if they've never been to a race before, even if they don't fall in love with it, they certainly leave there with a, wow, I cannot believe how exciting that was. You know, when I watch it on TV, it's like, left, left, left. And I get here and it's like, wow, everything that goes into it, the dynamics of it, the team, the the pit crew, um, the preparing of the car in the garage, and just the, the that um, overwhelming rush of a start or a restart and um, hearing that. Um, it, it really is um, something that I don't think a lot of sports experience. I mean, even as much as I love football, there's there's no restart in football. There's no like a, I mean, yeah, you, you get, make a touchdown and the whole stadium erupts, but the the thunderous sound of uh, a Bristol restart, you, there's there's nothing like it on earth. Especially when it's gone silent, mm-hmm. you know, for the, you know, the pit stops. Then you hear the, the guns going off and the pit stops, right? And they're going, that. then to be silent on the restart and then at Bristol to be so close to the action and then have all 40 of those cars take off. And like you say, the decibel level goes huge out of sight and you are back to full-time racing. And then it's almost to the degree too, where you kind of like to have to hold your head mm-hmm. straight ahead or kind of you know watch them go off in the corner and then wait and kind of look back to the right. <laughs> because if you tried to watch all the way around, you get physically dizzy. Yeah, I was on the top of the pit box and I was trying to watch your car as a sponsor and I was turning myself with you and I was like seriously making myself nauseous, felt like I was on a carnival ride. But, um, but yeah, people ask me um, often, obviously, what's your favorite track? And they think I'm going to say Daytona. And I don't. I'm like, nope, Daytona is not my favorite track. Bristol is my favorite track. And they're like, what? A short track? I was like, you got to go there. So listeners, if you are a racing fan and you follow NASCAR and you want to choose a track to go to, bucket list Bristol, because it is a big one. The night race. The night the race. Dirt race. Yeah, not the dirt. You'll no. be choked. <laughs> yeah, don't don't go to dirt. No, no, definitely not. Uh, um, uh, so no. I would not highly recommend that one. Uh, but you know, again, it is a it is something that I think you come out of there if you haven't if you haven't been before, you may not be a true lover of it or whatever, but you have a, a renewed ex- or maybe maybe respect for what goes on and how difficult it is. And if you ever had a headset on, you would understand you know, all the things that make up a race and how much is physically going on and how much processing the crew chief and the driver and the the crews are doing to stay up with the race because it unfolds very quickly and a lot of things change very quickly. So it's interesting, I think, for somebody even that hasn't been before, if you have that uh, that ability to do that, it's a different perspective of of racing itself. Absolutely. Well, and, and I wanted to um, segue on to another topic because we were talking a lot about the wide world of racing and how racing motorsports in general is very global. Um, but taking it to American racing and particularly American stock car racing, a lot of people ask, 
where are you located? And to me, it was always kind of a funny question because I automatically said, well, in North Carolina, of course, but I guess I have to realize sometimes that maybe people don't know that all the teams are either from North or South Carolina. There's only only been one cup team um, that was in Denver that was front row for a short period of time. And it was a huge furniture furniture row, sorry, furniture row, right. Front front rows right here. Um, And um, they, um, obviously had a lot of um, troubles being that far away. And uh, it was difficult. And I'd like you to expand a little bit on that, Derek, about how the industry obviously started here. But the reason it stays here is because it takes so many moving parts, machinery, uh, people, the skill workers that it takes to put these stock cars together. It just makes sense to have them in the same area. It's not like you can ship um, a car easily or even sheet metal or brakes or engines. And so all of these things that are being built are in this vicinity and mainly um, in Mooresville, Concord. Um, some are north, like where we're at, Salisbury Welcome, that's where Childress is. And then you go, um, you know, down into South Carolina, you know, some of the Xfinity teams are down there. But for the most part, it is in this part of the country. And maybe you could expand on why that is so. Well, stock car racing started in this area, you know, and, you know, for the majority of the teams, they were in the vicinity here. There were, you know, a few, there's a few, you know, like Spartanburg, South Carolina, you know, Bud Moore was down there and, you know, you had, um, you know, the different, the different locations and you still had like the truck series, you know, on the higher echelons of sport, stock car racing or truck racing and Thor sport being in Sandusky, Ohio, which is an anomaly. And then you had, of course, as we alluded to, Furniture Row with Barney Visser's team that was out in Denver. And, uh, you know, that was something that, you know, you talk about difficulties, uh, but they rose above the difficulties because they ended but up they winning spent a championship. A lot, but they spent a lot of money. Well, of course they did. But, you know, you know, it's all relative how much money and cup you spend. But, you, you know, being that far away, your business model, you know, had to change. You physically had to move people to that area and have them, you know, relocate. Uh, you had to be very self-reliant. You had to have a lot of the machinery and all the things in-house to make sure that you could, you know, pretty much control your destiny. They did have an alliance with Joe Gibbs Racing, which provided a lot of opportunities and technology and alliance with them and, uh, you know, with the uh, with that program. So it was, but it was a very, very expensive um, program. And I think ultimately was, the demise of that entity after winning a championship, spending whatever it was, you know, $40 million or whatever, you know, it would, it would just definitely, but he did it over a number of years. So he spent a lot of money to have that caliber of a race team, but you had to, you had to hand it to him. You know, he made it happen and they did a good job. But even when he won the championship, he, he made the comment, I'm not putting any more of my money into it. The owner said, I'm spending my own money to, to fund this effort. And, and I do feel that um, it just added to the bottom line you know, dollar price by being so far away. So um, coming back to the amount of industry that's here, because a lot of people, they want to know, you know, how can I get into the industry? How can I get a job in NASCAR? And a lot of them start as drivers. Um, the majority of people that worked for us in like the um, engineering engine um, 
uh, mechanical or even spotters all started as drivers themselves. They had the aspiration to become a driver when they realized either they didn't have the talent to compete at the top level or they didn't have the funding, then they were, you know, relegated to say, okay, how can I stay in this sport and make a living for a family? And so they, you know, chose, you know, whatever department they were good in. So it can be done, um, you know, and, and North Carolina, and I'm not the chamber of commerce for the state of North Carolina here, but I, I will boast that it is a, um, it's a wonderful place to live, um, you know, from a seasonal standpoint, but it also is very, um, it's affordable to live here. And especially if you live in the Pacific Northwest or California or, you know, places where it's very expensive to live. Um, this is a very affordable place to live. And I, I know that for a fact. It seems like that, you know, if you're in motorsports, and I don't care if it's, you know, IndyCar or you know, Trans Am, IMSA, stock car racing, uh, you're, you can make a living doing this. And there is opportunities uh, from a crew standpoint, uh, crew chief, engineering, whatever, you know, you have the capabilities to do or what you can learn to do. There's great opportunity in motorsports across the United States. So I think it, again, you, you alluded to the fact that a lot of the guys start out driving race cars at the local levels. And certainly maybe you're very proficient when races, when championships. So their thoughts are, much as I did, you you go east, young man. So <laughs> instead of go west. Instead of west. go west, young man, you go east. <laughs> so you look for a way to wherever you're at, whether it was Pacific Northwest, Southern California, you know, you you know, you come back here and you look for um a place to live, a place to stay, a place to race, a look for a job. And sometimes you just have to start at the lower levels. I mean, obviously we've given a lot of young people opportunities that were fresh out of college from an engineering degree. Uh, they gave their time. Uh, they were in maybe the uh, you know, NASCAR, you know, Institute and we gave them, you know, opportunities to come work on the cars and learn a trade. And then obviously ended up getting to a point where they could get paid to do it. But there's opportunity. And I think, but you come down here with the mindset of coming and being a race car driver. You want to be at the highest level and you want to drive for a living. And that's what you start at. And then there's obviously guys that built race cars, maybe, you know, up in the, you know, maybe the, in the upper east portion where they were doing modified, building modified cars, or they were racing the modified divisions or running Bush North. Then you migrate south trying to look for a job in a higher echelon, but you have all the tools and the ability to do it. So that's the difference, right? And I think you, you just, and then you end up following people I and mean, you actually bring people like we did. I mean, when I, when I was like the very first driver to come back, you know, east and make it to from the west coast, from the west coast, I mean, yes. come back east from the west coast. Chuck Bowen, you know, drove for Lakes Drywall, Jimmy and Slow, but. You know, Chuck Bowen came back here and ran primarily in the Bush series, but I was like the first one to really come back here. And by doing so, obviously I brought a lot of people with me that were building engines from the West Coast. We had a lot of people from out there, you know, crew chiefs that I brought back here and gave them an opportunity to get here and become involved and get a, a, a foothold. And but, then they took, they took it from there. But they came after you, you know, had to prove yourself that 
a West Coaster can make it on the East Coast into NASCAR because it was one thing to be a race car driver on the West Coast. It kind of had that stigma, right? It did. That you are not going to, you're just a, a, a big fish in a little pond yeah, over there in the West Coast. Anything, right. Know? And, but we came back here and we immediately sat on pole at Michigan. We ended up, you know, obviously getting to Daytona, winning the Daytona 500. And, and that's really the migration precedent. started. It did. Yeah, was was from that. And I, I want to um, take this opportunity to um, bring up something that I found in going through the vault, um, which we are giving prizes out, those that are part of the Derek Cope Club. And um, I came across this um, from the governor of the state of Washington. And it's from the secretary of the Senate. Um and it's several certificates, which I don't know why you've never framed these, um, but here was in the bottom of a box, and it says that um, Mr. Cope, on behalf of the members of the Washington State Senate, were enclosing a copy of a Senate resolution that was adopted on March 7th, 1990. And if you look at the, certif the certificate here, and it's got the state seal on it, um, and it um, is written like a like an attorney document, whereas the Washington State Senate seeks to recognize and honor significant achievements, blah, blah, blah. And it it does state that um, the Daytona 500 is universally accepted as the most significant stock car race in the United States. And whereas Derek Cope, native of Spanaway, Washington, um, has won the 32nd running of the Daytona 500 on February 18th, 1990, um, we would like to give him um, this honor and uh, it goes on, whereas, whereas, whereas. But um, it is actually, you know, pretty impressive that um, they were applauding this achievement. And you actually have a, uh, a spot um, in the Senate <laughs> because of your achievement, because it does make the comment here, whereas Derek Cope is the first driver from the West Coast to win the Daytona 500. And I think that was our, I always kind of wanted that proof because I noticed at the Fontana broadcast just last week, the commentators mentioned um and even had a graph of all of the drivers that are from the West Coast and mainly California now. And of course, you know, we all know the California kid, Jimmy Johnson, you know, was probably the winningest driver um, from the West Coast or winningest driver ever, right? Besides Richard Petty. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, he definitely made it look like, hey, Californians can come over here and be extremely successful. And so then, you know, you had Casey Kane that came from Washington State and then, you know, others. I, Greg I don't, Biffle. Greg Biffle. Yeah, and Chad um, Little. Um, and then, um, you know, now you hear about. Ernie Irvin. Kyle Larson is from Kyle California. Larson. I mean, so yeah. there was a Jeff lot Gordon. of, you know, later, a lot of great drivers that, you know, had opportunities and made their way and cut their teeth and then, you know, migrated uh, east. Uh, and so, again, it was... It's just something that, like like evolution, it just happens, right? You know, everyone realizes that opportunity is there. You, you know, you head that way. It's like, you know, like heading east to try to, you know, claim property. You know, you're just, mm -hmm. you're going to. West. Forge, I mean, heading west and claim, <laughs> yeah, claim property, right? It's out there in Oklahoma or whatever it was. And you are just, you're chomping at the bit. You're going to do everything you can. And you're out there. I mean, you're going like a madman, right? And you're going to do, not be, you know, have the resolve to get there, make it happen. And I think that's what the mindset was. And then I think eventually once somebody did it, the realization that it can be done, uh, we can get there, there's opportunity, and we just need to have the desire to do it. And so, yeah, maybe, 
you know, some small way paved the way for other people to believe that uh, they could do it as well. Makes me laugh because I always think of that um, line in Days of Thunder when Tom Cruise shows up on his motorcycle and someone calls him a Yankee and someone says, he's not a Yankee, he's from California. And he's not really anything. He's not really anything. And 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 uh, Harry Hogue says, "You said it." <laughs> <laughs> and well, I mean, again, you know, you're three thousand miles away from you know the the sport, and you know, you really weren't you know involved in the Civil War, and you really, you know, not thought of much, right? So basically, we're out there somewhere, but you know. <laughs> Uh, but eventually we come and again, it was different for people. I mean, the acceptance wasn't really there. You weren't, you know, from the South, you spoke different and you acted different. You looked different. So it was just one of those things. You where looked you had, different. Yeah. I wore a suit and tie. Most oh, of the time. oh, okay. So was I was going to say what you got. A bit different. I, yeah. I did definitely. <laughs> got definitely horns on your a head. Little different, you know, <laughs> but from that standpoint, but, uh, you know, again, it's just, yeah, it's just a part of the sport that's, you know, that's happened because it was a long time ago when you really think about how how things back in the 70s and 80s, I mean, really, I mean, the first televised race, 1979, or the Daytona 500 on CBS. So that was- That's crazy to think about you that. You just think about that. And I was at, in 1979, I was at Ontario Motor Speedway when Dale Earnhardt won Rookie of the Year. So I was really in the infancy when these guys were just getting started with their careers and then raced against them and had that opportunity. So yeah, I'm old. It's a long time ago, <laughs> but- Still, the memories are so clear in some regards and some not. But yeah, I've, I relished, you know, that being, I guess, coming in the sport at this period, of, at that period of time, experiencing what I did, driving for who I did, experiencing all those things, and really the meteoric rise of NASCAR, in my opinion, I, I was part of that. And uh, I think that's something special that you'll never see that ever again, that escalation of notoriety of a sport. Um, it was something you'll just, I think, never, ever see again. Yeah. Well, and, and you do have a very unique perspective because by the time you ran your last Daytona 500, most drivers your age had retired. And I think you are one of only three drivers, if I remember this correctly, um, that um, have driven in uh, NASCAR for five consecutive decades. So, you know, that's definitely a, uh, a unique honor to hold. Well, like you say, I just, I love the sport and, you know, you just, you just still want to participate. Um, but, you know, going back to what we were talking about and got off on a tangent there maybe a little bit, but, you know, there is great opportunity for, for people in the sport still. And it is a people business. And that's the one thing, like, like we always talk about, you are looking for qualified people with good work ethics and desire. So there's a many people that want to make it here as a driver, but if you come and you're and you give of yourself, the opportunities are there. And then if you have the talent, you know, and you know, can learn other aspects like we're trying to discuss on this on race theory, and that is being well rounded and all the things that you really need to do to try to put yourself in a position so that somebody believes in you, helps you get to where you want to be. But there is recourse. If you can't get to that level, becoming a crew chief as you can see today, you make a lot of money. You have a great opportunity to have a great lifestyle, travel, do different things, engineers. I mean, just so many things. Truck driver. They, you, If you want to be a truck driver in NASCAR, this is the place to come. Because oh, we need drivers. You need really let, qualified. Let me tell you all, if, 
if you've got a CDL or you you enjoy truck driving, yes, we are constantly in need of of, uh, truck drivers that are reliable in this sport. So there is opportunity. And I think that's the part that uh, I think has always been something that I've enjoyed about the sport is that, you know, people ask all the time, well, how do I get here? And I said, well, you just have to come. You have to make a commitment. I mean, look at so many people. You listen to guys like Kevin Harvick and other people talk. They lived on somebody's couch, Ron Hornaday's couch, you know, slept on a couch there, did what they do, just to try to get a well, foothold, right? You, you slept on a mattress in a garage. Yeah, I mean, so you you do what you have to do, but you have to be willing to, you know, care enough about it that you'll do just about anything to to get an opportunity. And people eventually see that. And then that's when people want to help. Yep, absolutely. That's a um, a good segue into some of the questions that we have gotten from listeners. Um, one in particular comes from Corey Zaradanek. I'm, I'm probably murdered your name. Um, I enjoy listening to your podcast weekly. With the start of the new NASCAR season, what would be the mindset for a driver starting the season with his future and uncertainty with his team? For example, like Todd Gilliland having to get out of his car for six races this season for an up-and-coming driver. What should his goals be for the season? Should he be calling other teams right away or just weather it out and see what happens? In in my opinion, it, uh, there's a lot of underlining things that we don't know about. And you don't know what kind of a contractual agreement they had. You don't know if he was in, you know, a year to year contract. So, uh, and they hadn't signed something yet, or if they had signed a contract and, you know, it was to run the year, but yet this other opportunity came up and they discussed it and, you know, you make choices. Uh, I think probably, you know, there, you know, most of the time, if you have a contract written, the thing about contracts are that basically all they have to do is pay you. So if you say you sign a contract for X amount of dollars to run the year, they don't stipulate which races you run, but they 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 pay you contractually for a year at their disposal to run the races. If they choose to take you out of the car, they really can do that. They just have to pay you. So unless it's in the contract that you are running all 37 races. If you, unless it says that you are running every race, right? But at the same time, they are they're they're saying basically they are just paying you and that's how they're always written. They're always written that they're paying you for the, the season. The season means that hypothetically, but it's just like when you get hurt, if you go snowboarding and you get hurt mm-hmm. or something happens, you get out of the car, you basically have caused a problem for the team, but they're still paying you. They're bound to pay you. So this deal could be a situation where this opportunity came about, whatever the case may be, or maybe you know there was some decision made within the organization, which I'm not privy to, and they made a conscious decision to do this. And what what should Todd do? I think he's a good little race car driver. Uh, He's proven himself. uh, And again, you have to look at it. You have to dig deep in your your own soul and say, okay, you know, what is, what do I need to do? Do I need to look at this in good faith right now? There's no other slots to open, you know, in a ride comparable to what I have. So maybe I'm just better off being a team player and taking the seat out of the car for those six races and working hard on myself when I come back to get in the car that I showcase my, my potential and I perform at the highest level and elevate my, you know, my stock. And then 
that gives you know a, a better perception within the team continuity and then there's the other side of that where you can say well i'm going to go look for another ride to fill that void so i can stay in a car and those are decisions that collectively have to be made with the organization and the drivers but you know it's a it's a hard thing to do as a race car driver to be at the highest level and to be pulled out of a car or or something happened like that and you're sitting on the sidelines watching somebody else drive your race car i can honestly tell you that is about as painful as it gets and it just rips your you know your heart out and 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 you get plenty pissed off Mm-hmm. I know I've been there. And so, yeah, it's a hard pill to swallow. Absolutely. And from my standpoint, um, seeing it happen to you since we've been together, I would say it is unless you have some type of loyalty or you truly believe that the reason you got taken out of the car was out of the owner's control and you have every... um indication that they're going to put you back in. I would definitely be looking at other opportunities to drive. In my opinion, when you're at the highest level of motorsports, you're only as good as your last race. You are meant to be the best that you can be. Their obligation to the sponsor, to the team, to the people working there, to the culture of the organization is to win races, ultimately, or be you know, the best that they can be depending on what funding they have. But the organization as a whole, that's all they care about. They care about them. They care about the team. They care about the owner. They care about the money. And the sponsor. And the sponsor. And so many times, that's the reason why when a team is not got off to the great start, they've, you know, missed the first few races or not ran really well or didn't finish the race or whatever. The bottom line is there's ultimately... You have to answer to somebody. The sponsor is not getting the exposure they want. You know, they are not happy with the start they got because they've got promotions and things built around it. And all of a sudden, there becomes, as if things continue to go down that path, then that's when there's a scapegoat. And that's when either it's the driver, the crew chief, or something that they use to pacify the sponsor or the situation. And again, you know, this is a level that you get paid to be a, a a great race car driver and you put your life on the line, you put everything on the line to go out and make it happen. So, you know, if you can't perform, then you will be discarded and they will look for the next greatest guy to put in there to fill that void. And they're always looking. That's the one thing that in this sport that I think you, you know, if you don't believe that, you're misguided. They're always looking at what is best and what is out there for the team. And most of the time now, uh, and again, the most cost-effective standpoint. Right. It used to be that you're pay- they're paying big, huge bucks to these guys, and now they're looking at, can I take a young kid that I can bring along that has the talent, he's, you know, he's going to be hanging it out, be right there, and can we build something on him and not pay him as much? Mm-hmm. That's what this, I think that's what the dynamic is this day and age. So, and then again, you know, can you bring money? You know, those are the, there's lots of things like that. That's, you know, what can you bring, you know, that aid in the actual overall process? So yeah, the whole thing's just changed a lot, but it really is all about money and performance. And if you can't perform, you're not going to be there long-term. And sometimes it's not even something that the driver um, controls. I saw us finish top 10 at Daytona um, in 
July, and then the very next race at New Hampshire, we did poorly, not because of the car. We were good. The car was fast, but we had to save the engine for Indy. And so we did not finish that race. And because of that, that was really the beginning of the demise with that sponsor. That sponsor was so upset with the performance coming off a top 10 and then going to the back of the field. Um, they uh, just a few weeks later pulled the pulled the money, stopped paying. You know, and that's a different a different scenario, but it's one that's a business model that we had or you have that you're basically only getting a small amount of money anyways. And it's a, and really it's a gift, you know, for the sponsor to get that kind of exposure. You go down to Daytona, you run really well, but then you only have a motor that you can only put so much time on because, you know, we were on a very tight budget and, you know, you qualified really well. We were running really good and then we had really couldn't finish the race because I really needed to save that for Indy. So you would go out and it's a bigger payday, bigger race, and you have, it's a lot bigger racetrack. You had to have that power to make that race. So you make choices. Again, it's all about choices. And there's certain things you have to do when you are an owner and you are running a business, you have to make the hard decision. And ultimately it's the, the demise of the driver. It could be the demise of the sponsor. It could be the demise of yourself. And Unfortunately, that's the way it is. Well, and of course, this was a completely different circumstance that I'm talking about, but I was just bringing it full circle that things can happen from week to week. Like you were saying, things change and a driver can be um, just the cat's meow one, one Sunday and then the next Sunday, he's not. Well, just take a look at Tyler Reddick. You know, last year, he was the most talked about guy for the most part, really. I think, you know, was always on the high side, running, hanging the thing out, winning races at RCR and being, you know, like the the guy, right? I mean, this is the, you're building the this, this team around always this Always vying guy. for the win. You're vying for the win. And then leaves and goes to Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin. And now, they, I don't think today, I think, or I think they haven't only finished one race this year. They, they have struggled at Daytona, struggled at California. And then, you know, I think had a decent effort, you know, but still not really up to where he had been running, you know, I think at Las Vegas. So just basically shows that you can be a hero one week and a zero the next. <laughs> and I mean, really, it is, it, that's just, at this sport, at this level, there is no rhyme or reason why uh, the car runs really effectively one week, you know, and then next week, all of a sudden, they're not hitting on all eight cylinders. And then there's guys like Trackhouse who seems like they hit it every week. So it can be done. There is a method to the madness, and but it takes resources, it takes personnel, it takes people, it takes everything that you can, uh, the processes to be prepared. Preparation meets opportunity, and some teams have it, some teams don't. Well, and some teams just have a string of bad luck, that's for sure. That is correct. And then others have a string of fortunate luck, and you know, you never know what end you're going to be you're going to be on from week to week. So there is a lot of pressure on the driver. So, you know, we've kind of um, circled around and around this topic, but thank you for your question, Corey. And I think um, I can say your last name, Zaradnasek. So let me know if I'm correct on that. <laughs> um, and then also I wanted to, and it's been a couple weeks. And so I apologize. There were so many people that had stories about um, Derek's Daytona 500. And I appreciate all of them. I mean, there were you just hundreds, but there was one that, that stuck out. There was many that stuck out, but I wanted to, to bring this one to the fore because I truly appreciate his service, um, to the country. And, um, it was a pretty dynamic story. So this is Milo Gordon Rogers. 
and he was actually in Iraq when you won. And he says, you rock, dude. It was awesome to find out. My Humvee had hit a landmine and I was waking up to the news that you had won. It's a long explanation of TBI, and we actually had to look up what that means, traumatic brain injury. So um, the poor guy was was uh, not in good shape. And um, so he wakes up and he says, when I recovered, that's when I got the news that you won. That was so cool. We in the service enjoyed listening and watching. Thank you. Well, I, I've always you know, you watch the television coverages and you watch, you know, major sporting events and, you know, the Daytona 500 and you have uh, all of our servicemen and women, you know, they're far away from home and they're serving their country and, and providing, you know, our ability to go out and enjoy what we love to do and as entertain people for the most part. And we get to do what we love to do and drive a race car for a living, which is, a you know, a gift, a true gift. But truly a gift for somebody like like Milo, uh, who served his country and gave us the the rights to freedom. And very, you know, very happy that he enjoyed it as much as, as we did. And, you know, that he would convey that to us. That means a lot. And for them to still think about that, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a long time ago. But um, very appreciative of you writing in and, and saying those things. And, um, you know, we're very thankful for what you did go through. I hope you're doing well. And um, look forward to your continued, you know, life uh, feeling good and uh, enjoying your life and um, staying in touch with motorsports because uh, so many people like you that support us, it really is uh, what we do it for. Well, and, and what a, um, you know, a, a paradigm when I think about he's laying in a hospital bed, you know, he, I mean, he's really almost died, could have died. I'm sure there were men in this, in this Humvee that did. And when he wakes up, he's inquiring about the Daytona 500. I mean, and to us, we, we think, well, it's, it's a living, um, but, and it's, and it's thrilling, but really it does not compare to what he was going through and why he was going through it. You know, you, you drive a race car for entertainment for a living. And of course this is kind of, you know, double-edged because they look at it as you're giving them something to not just, you know, fill time, but you gave him joy, happiness, and, you know, something to talk about. Well, it, for them preserving our freedom, it's a the ultimate gift sometimes. And, you know, we, I know we do a lot of functions and activities and things, you know, supporting them and there's foundations that do it all. But, you know, for us, really, like for you're doing things that sports seems to bring bring something to people when times are tough like covid or mm -hmm. when you're in the service you have something that takes your mind off your daily things or, or the despair that you have and you know that's one thing that i've always relished about doing this is that you know there are so many people that you know that, that love what we do and follow it and i've always tried to like you know, do the appearances and the autograph sessions and spend time with people, make phone calls on people's, you know, birthdays or, or in situations that they needed some help or some, you know, a discussion. 
I've just always felt compelled that we needed to give back. And I tried not to say no in so many cases just because of, because of that, because the only reason we had the opportunity was because of people like Milo and that followed our sport and had the same passion that we had for it. Absolutely. And thank you so much to everyone um, who served and continues to serve because we realize that um, freedom is not free. And the things that we take for granted in this country is because of your sacrifice. And it certainly does not come un go unnoticed. And I hope that um, you realize how thankful we are for you and how much we pray for you daily. With that, we'll say wait for another episode of Race Theory. But thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.